Joshua chapter 23, victorious living in the promised land. Joshua's final message in chapter 23 and later in chapter 24. We read now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age. And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. You've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight so you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, and lest you go among these nations, these who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have done this to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. Therefore take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Or else if indeed you do go back. And cling to the remnant of these nations. These that remain among you and make marriages with them and go into them and they to you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you. But they shall be snares and traps to you. And scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes. Until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Behold, this day I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you when you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Joshua's long and fruitful life and ministry is about to come to an end. 
And so Joshua is going to give instructions to the leaders of Israel. Joshua reminds the leaders of all that God has done, victory over their enemies, verses 1 through 5. And then again in verses 9 and 10, victorious living in the promised land. Note in the text how he repeats the, the statement, this good land, this good land. Remain faithful to the Lord, he says in verse 8. He, victorious living in the promised land is going to require Israel to obey the Lord in verse 6. Refuse to associate with the surrounding pagan people in verse 7. Remain faithful to the Lord in verse 8. Love the Lord in verses 9 through 13. And so Joshua's farewell address contains words of wisdom in verses 6 through 8 and verses 11 through 16. Like the last chapter, it begins with wisdom and then it ends with warning in verses 12 through 16. And so the chapter itself includes a review of the past in verses 3 and 4, a promise for the future in verse 5, and then responsibility for the present generation in verses 6 through 16. Joshua is at the end, he is about to hand over the leadership of the nation to a new generation. And so he begins with final instructions to the leaders in verses 1 and 2. Look what he says, Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old. Advanced in age. And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. Think about what you're reading. Battles have been fought. Battles have been won. Israel, under the capable leadership of Joshua, crossed over the River Jordan. Jericho was taken. A treaty had been made with the Amorites. The five united kings were vanquished. The sun and the moon stood still. Joshua made a division of the lands. A lot has unfolded throughout this great book of Joshua. Israel has experienced a time of rest from her enemies. That means a time of blessing, a time of peace, a time of security. And for many of us, as we walk the walk and we experience the pain and the problems that every once in a while, God in his grace and his mercy gives us blessing, peace, security. Some scholars suggest that this rest to Israel from all their enemies may have lasted as long as 20 years. We know this because of Joshua's age. At the end of the conquest of the promised land, both Joshua and Caleb were 85 years old. Remember in chapter 14, verse 10? Joshua in the next chapter dies at the age of 110. If you take a quick look at chapter 24, verse 29, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being a hundred and ten. And so this time of rest, 
this time of peace, this time of, of leadership under, under Joshua is now fast coming to a close. The elders, the leaders, the judges, the officers are called. I want you to imagine it just for a moment. Caleb is there. Eleazar the priest is there. His son Phineas is there. The men who fought side by side with Joshua at Jericho and Ai and throughout all of the land. It's a kind of state of the union address that he is giving with instructions for the future. Imagine he's standing before the collective leadership of the nation. What will he say? What do you have to say to the generation that's going to come after you? Billy Graham famously said, God didn't call me to preach to the generation that came before me or the generation that came after me, but to preach to this generation. God has entrusted to you family, friends, people, acquaintances, can you imagine if for whatever reason God gives you a window of opportunity to speak right before you die? What is it that you're going to have to say? We seem to attribute a lot to the final statements, the final words that we are going to say. For Joshua, he's going to call on the nation to obey the Lord. And then to live separated lives in verses 3 through 8. Look at verse 3. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. Notice Joshua gives all the praise, all the glory, all the honor to the Lord. It's God who has fought for them. In verse 4, see I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan, with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. That's the Mediterranean Sea. And verse 5, And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight, so you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. Remember, the, the, the people who are occupying the land have for the most part been driven out, but there are still hangers-on. And throughout our study in the book of Joshua, remember, I said this becomes a type and a picture of your Christian life. That the occupation for the Christian isn't a physical land, but it's the person of Christ. And that Jesus comes into your heart and into your life and he begins to occupy your thinking and he begins to occupy the way you live and how you live. There are things in our lives that don't want to go away. But Jesus wants to be all in all. Joshua commands them to remember the blessings of the Lord. Victory over enemies. And how God has given them the inheritance. And this becomes, again, one of the key ways to survive. It's to remember what God has done. Everything that has been promised. But note, not everything that has been promised has been possessed. Much land has been conquered. Much still remains to be done. And so God will continue to conquer their enemies, provide victory over the opposition, 
So this becomes that picture of victorious Christian living. It becomes the picture and the theme of a lifetime of repeated victories over enemies. And so every verse is rich with the blessings of God. Joshua be begins with a review of the past, reminding them that they were eyewitnesses to all that God had done for them. This isn't something that they read about in a book or that they made up. From the crossing of the Jordan, to the defeat of their enemies, to the miracles that took place, to the occupation of the land, God has been present. The Lord has been fighting for them. And so, all Joshua did was just simply divide the land. Victorious Christian living in the promised land always begins with a careful review of what God has done in our lives through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's such a good thing to constantly reflect on what God has done in the past and to remember what God is doing in the present. And so, like Joshua, it involves entering, conquering, possessing. We enter into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're given a provision to occupy and to conquer our enemies. As I've repeatedly said, the world, the flesh, the devil, we possess the resources and the promises in order to walk the walk that God has called us to. And when we look at the past, we can go, we can reflect. Now, we don't want to just simply in a, in a, in a morbid way but we can look back at the desperate pit that was our lives before Jesus Christ became our Lord. And sometimes we need to do that. We reflect on the bondage of sin and the slavery to sin. How God delivered us from our sin. How we've been rescued from sin. How we've been given new life. How we've left slavery and bitterness and bondage. And that's part of the point that Joshua is bringing to their mind. That slavery and bitterness and bondage is no longer a part of who we are. And freedom and grace is ours. There's a time and a place for us to look back at what God has done. And then there's a time and a place to look forward to what God will do in verse 5. That's what, it's, what it means when it says, and the Lord your God will expel from before you and drive them out of your sight. One thing has to do with the past and then another thing has to do with the future. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, God's workers change, but his word remains the same. Joshua assures them that God will continue to fight for them and then give them victory over their enemies. And that's part of the message. That's the message for you. The Lord has fought for you in the past and the Lord will continue to fight for you in the present and give you the resources that you need in the here and the now. Note what it says in verse 6. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. 
Note what, what Joshua says. He repeats what he said at the beginning of the book. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law. Note what, what that means. It's, it's going to take great courage to not just simply read the Bible, but believe it and do it. After reminding the leaders what God has done, Joshua tells them what they must do. These instructions harken back to another point. In the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 7 through 11, where again, Moses gives instructions to the children of Israel of how they should continue to walk and to obey the Lord. And it even harkens to a future time when Jesus, towards the end of his ministry, will gather the disciples together and he will begin to instruct them about some of the dangers that lie ahead. But he says that he's going to be with us and that he's going to follow us into the future. Seven times Joshua uses the key word nations in verses 3 through 13. The reason why this becomes important is because these people groups or nations or in the Hebrew goim, people groups, are going to be a source of problem as people are going to be tempted to not only dishonor and disobey God, but to adopt the thinking of the people who are around them. So Israel has to take care to exercise courage to read the law to heed the law the idea is that they know the word of god and then they do the word of god and heed the numerous warnings regarding the dangers of adopting a worldview that's contrary to that which has been revealed by moses or by god through moses and so it is with you because there are going to be people that who are going to surround you and they're going to, to suggest to you that the Bible's not true. That when the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, they're going to suggest to you, it just sort of got here. And you need to be able to say to them, which seems to require more faith? That a supernatural God created the heavens and the earth or that everything just suddenly appeared out of nowhere? In order to defeat their foes, in order to occupy the land, in order to live victorious, Israel has to know the word of God and do the word of God. It seems so simple, but the principle remains true in every age. It's going to take great courage to trust God and then to trust his word. But unless you trust the Lord, unless you trust his word, you will not be able to oppose the enemy. And so here's Joshua's promise to the people of Israel that God is willing to empower them and enable them to do just that. To trust him and to trust his promise. C.S. Lewis said, quote, a little courage helps more than much knowledge. A little human sympathy more than much courage. And the least 
tincture. You may not know what that word means. It means infusion of the love of God will do even more. Courage, yes. Sympathy, compassion, yes. The love of God, yes. It's going to be important as we're going to see. In verse 7 it says, And lest you go among these nations, those who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them, nor shall you serve them, nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. Pause for a moment. What is Joshua's great concern? That they are going to begin to adopt, incorporate, and be affected by the people that remain. The children of Israel run the risk of compromising God's word by listening to the people who are around them. And that's the idea. In verse 7, we have the negative. So the children of Israel would compromise the word. That's his concern in verse 6. So he, he begins with, what, what's Joshua's big, big, big concern? You could compromise the word of God. What's his next big concern? That you could adopt the methods, ideas, beliefs of the pagan neighbors. In verse 7, we have the negative. Lest you go among these nations, these who remain among you. So why, again, would, would Joshua instruct them not to mention the name of their pagan deities? Or not to swear by them? Or not to serve them? Or not to bow down to them? Because the people would be tempted to compromise, to tolerate, to accommodate. It's the same temptation that we face as people say, do you really have to take the Bible so literally? Do you have to take these instructions so specifically? Isn't there any wiggle room that you would allow? And that's the idea. Why in the world would the children of Israel, listen carefully, why in the world would the children of Israel worship the gods that have been defeated? And the same is true for you. Why in the world would you want to have anything to do with the devil who's been defeated? Why in the world would you want to have anything to do with a bankrupt, empty philosophy that offers nothing. Why remind them not to swear by or serve or bow down? Again, this is the idea. Josh will, will give them the positive in verse 8. But you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. This is exactly the instructions that were given earlier in chapter 22. The Hebrew word for hold fast, dabak, it means to cling tightly. It's related to the Hebrew term solder, glue. The word is used to describe the intimate relations of a husband and wife in the book of Genesis. It's used to describe Ruth's loyalty to Naomi in Ruth chapter 1 verse 14. 
The command incorporates the idea of resolution. It means remain faithful, remain loyal, remain intimate, no matter what the circumstances. So Joshua's final words of appeal to the nation is, be loyal to the, to the Lord. So think about what he's saying. Let go of sin. Embrace the Lord. Joshua gives four strong admonitions. Number one, the people of Israel must never invoke or call upon the name of the false gods. Number two, the people of Israel must never swear or take oaths in the name of these false gods. Number three, the people of Israel must never, no, never, no, never, ever, ever serve false gods. And number four, the people must never bow down. That means worship, honor, acknowledge these false gods. And as the years turn into decades and the decades turn into centuries, this is exactly the thing that is going to plague the people of Israel as you make your way through the book of Joshua, excuse me, Judges, and in first and second Samuel and first and second Chronicles, there's compromise. There's compromise after compromise, which is going to lead to idolatry, which is going to result in captivity for the northern nations and eventually captivity for the southern nations. So the people of Israel were to keep God's word, all of God's word. And it's going to require strength and courage. The people of Israel were to live strict lives of separation from these nations. And this, of course, meant separation from sin and separation to the immoral and unrighteous elements. Paul echoes that very thought for Christians when he writes, come out from among them and In Romans chapter 12, when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Literally, it says, do not be poured into the mold of the way this world thinks, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind as you seriously consider what God has said. We are at risk. The children of Israel were at risk. Again, it's going to take courage and strength to decline participation in evil deeds, in false worship, and false gods. We're strictly forbidden from participating in idolatry. Again, Paul warned the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, even as you were led. When Paul was speaking to the pagans of his own day, he said, this is who you used to be, but this isn't who you are anymore. And each and every one of you have a story about who you used to be and what you used to do and the things that you used to participate in. Contrast that with 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 26, where we read, concerning the children of Israel, for all the gods, G-O-D-S, small g, of the people are idols. 
but the Lord made the heavens. The contrast is there are nations and people who have made up false gods, but there's only one God who made the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 2.8, their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. In the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, it says, if, if you can make it, and you bow down to it, then you know that it's a phony God. And remember, every single small G-O-D that exists in the world today is the fabrication of some human sentiment. So we have to exercise courage, leaving sin, cleaving to the Lord. Martin Luther wrote, quote, that to which your heart clings is your God, unquote. That's exactly right. The thing that you love the most and that you care about the most and that you devote yourself to the most, if it's something other than the God of the Bible, then you're in trouble. And so he says, love the Lord in verses 9 through 13. It's a repeat of chapter 22. Look what it says in verse 9. For the Lord is driven out from before you, great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. Once again, the Lord gets all of the honor and all of the glory and all of the praise. And it says in verse 10, one man of you shall chase a thousand for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. Think about this, faithfulness to the Lord, obedience to the Lord, separation from the nations. It brings strength and blessing. And because it brings strength and blessing, the Lord would, would it enable a single person to do the work of a thousand people. The words echo the instructions of Moses in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 7 and 8. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred shall put ten thousand to flight. Hebrew hyperbole? Not really. The power of God's people over their enemies would prove to be so dramatic that the only explanation would be God is working a miracle in that person's life. How else do you explain one person speaking to 10,000 people or 100,000 people reminding them of all that God has done. And so, think about it. For the Lord has driven out those. One man of you shall chase a thousand. In other words, it only takes one Christian who is obedient and faithful to the Lord, separated from sin, who experiences strength and blessing to say to a thousand people, you know what? God is God. He is still supreme. He is on the throne. In verse 11, look what it says. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Faithfulness to God. Obedience from, to the word. Separation from sin won't happen unless you love the Lord. Unless you're motivated by the Lord. 
That's why he says, therefore, take careful heed to yourselves. This is Joshua's say, way of saying, I need to warn you. Why? Because in one sense, love is a debt that we pay to God and to each other. Love is a payment we render. Think for just a moment. Love is both a debt and a duty. In the New Testament, it says, don't owe anyone anything other than to love them. Paul argues that in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, when he says, owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Then Paul lists some of the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness or covet. And all of these things are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So think about what we've been learning both on Sunday and in the book of Joshua. Love is the evidence of faith. We love the Lord. We love the Lord Jesus. We love him, it says in 1 John 4, 19, because he first loved us. Love is the proof of life in Christ. We know that we pass from death to life, it says in 1 John 3, 14, because we love the brethren. Love separates the fake from the genuine. Though I have all faith, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, and have not love, I am nothing. The presence of love is going to determine that which is real from that which is fake. Love provides our motive for service. Paul told the Corinthians that it was the love of Christ that compelled him. 2 Corinthians 5.14 Love is careful to obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments in John 14.15. And so C.S. Lewis was right when he wrote, quote, Every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly in proportion to his love for the Lord. Think about what that means. You're healthy spiritually in direct proportion to the passion and affection. Not that you simply feel in your heart, but that you exercise in reality love for God and love for each other. Remember, love isn't just simply a warm, fuzzy feeling that wells up in the pit of your stomach. Love is the willingness to do what's in the best interest of the person being loved. By that very definition, love means I am doing what God wants me to do. I'm doing what's in the best interest of my brothers or my sisters. In verse 12, look what it says, or else if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them, and go into them, and they to you, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides, thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. The blessings are conditional. They would either love the Lord, they're either going to hate sin and cleave to the Lord or they're going to leave the Lord and cling to the remnant of the nations. Cling here means 
Be influenced by them. Be changed by them. When it says make marriage with them, the idea is reiterated in the New Testament when it talks about being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. What fellowship has light with darkness when you are influenced and changed? And so it must mean that if you leave the Lord and cleave to the unbeliever, the make-believer, the person who's manipulating, here's what the Lord says, I'll remove my blessing. The principle for the New Testament believer applies. Sin in our lives, just like in their lives, becomes a snare. That's something that, that's a trap. A scourge is something that punishes. A thorn is a sharp instrument. Now, again, you've probably heard the expression, well, I love that as, about as much as I would love a sharp poke in the eye. This is what he's basically saying. What is more terrifying than to have someone force your eye open and then stick a needle into your eye? How awful is that? And that's the image and the picture. Sin in our life becomes a snare. It becomes a scourge. It becomes a thorn. We're not talking about an irritant. We're not talking about a setback. We're talking about something that's going to create persistent problems. In Joshua chapter 22, the children of Israel, remember... We're warned about the peril of misunderstanding. In the end, the children of Israel, for the most part, like I said, would go back. They would compromise. They would intermarry with the Canaanites. They would embrace the pagan practices of their neighbors. John MacArthur writes, quote, The Canaanites would become snares, traps, scourges, Thorns causing the Israelites to lose their land eventually. Does sin cause you to lose Christ? No. But you know what it does cause you to lose? Blessing. Do you know what else it causes you to lose? Testimony. Do you know what else it causes you to lose? Opportunity. This is why it's so important. Not just simply to be faithful so that you can retain blessing and you can retain victory and you can retain, retain being encouraged. It gives us an unprecedented opportunity to make a difference in the lives of our family and our friends. In chapter 20, God made a provision, you'll remember, for those who were involved in accidental homicide. That's manslaughter. You remember in chapter 20, they had cities of refuge. Is it possible that sometimes things happen and we sin? Is it possible that sometimes things happen and we didn't intentionally want to do a particular thing, but we wound up doing something and we understand that sin must be dealt with, but God makes a refuge for us. The Bible says God hasn't dealt with us according to our sin. 
or rewarded us according to our iniquity. There's so much grace and there's so much mercy. Here's, here's where I, I, I want you to understand something. There's grace and there's mercy that's available for us. The children of Israel in chapter 22, there was the peril of misunderstanding. In chapter 22, there was the peril when we accidentally find ourselves in situations that we, we never intended to be. In chapter 23, Joshua's reminding them of yet another peril. It's the peril of apostasy. Look what it says. If indeed you go back, the psalmist uses the phrase turned aside. Isaiah in chapter 1 verse 6 says turned back. The writer of Hebrews says draw back chapter 10 verse 39. Peter speaks of this sad experience in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 20 and 21 about being entangled and overcome in the previous life. Some of you have already had this experience of becoming entangled and overcome by things or people in your past. What's wonderful is there's a gracious God who loves you that we can repent of our sins. That we can say, Lord, I've discovered that instead of walking forward, I'm walking backwards. We can't live our lives. And see, what, what he's talking about to the children of Israel, let me just be as clear as I can. He's talking to a group of people or even a future generation that might forget what God miraculously did in opening up the Jordan, of miraculously taking Jericho, of overcoming their enemies. He's talking about the warning of, for those people who deny what God has done in their life, what Jesus has done in their life, who, who pretend that he never came into your heart, that pretend like he never forgave your sin, that to, they pretend like they never promised you heaven, that forgiveness isn't real, that salvation isn't real, that the gospel isn't real. For the people who turn their back on the covenant, who turn their back on the shed blood of Jesus, for the people who despise the spirit of grace. Apostasy is the abandonment of biblical beliefs, biblical principles, biblical doctrines once confessed. It's for the person who says, you know, I used to be a Christian. I used to go to church. I used to read my Bible. I used to pray. And Joshua is warning about those people who fall into the trap of being used to be Christians. Perils of misunderstanding. Perils of accidental involvements. Perils of going backwards. Will sometimes paralyze people with fear. Or they can be reminded. 
They can be reminded of a risen Savior. They can be reminded of a Jesus who loves us and dies for us. They can be reminded of the resources and provisions that have been given for our protection and our security and our assurance that we can rest comfortably and with a conscience void of offense. Let us possess our possessions. And that's the point. Do not despise or neglect God's warnings. Look at what he says in verses 14 and through 16. Verse 14, behold, this day I'm going the way of all the earth. It's an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew, which means I'm getting ready to die. I'm going the way of all earth. The Bible says it's appointed once for a person to die. And then the judgment, Joshua is reminding them that just like Moses before him, he's getting ready to die. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good Things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. This is Joshua's way of saying, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You know in your heart, you know in your soul that there's a real God. This real God has made real promises. This real God has kept his real promises. The Lord has promised good things which he has spoken all has come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. God has been gracious and kind and merciful. So Joshua repeatedly insists on the goodness of God, the graciousness of God, the kindness of God, the integrity, the authority, the infallibility, the indestructibility ability of once God making a promise of keeping his promise. So think about what he's saying. The word of God. Obey it. It's going to result in victory and blessing. Disobey it. And there's going to be misery. And there's going to be trial. And there's going to be defeat. Now again, I want to make this abundantly clear. Even in disobedience, there's misery and there's trial and there's defeat, but the misery doesn't have to go on forever and the trial doesn't have to go on forever and the defeat doesn't have to go on forever because we can say enough is enough. Joshua affirms the word of God. All have come to pass for you. Not one word has failed. Again, does this mean that the children of Israel occupy all the land? No. Does it mean that they've driven out all of their enemies? No. The Lord himself has already revealed that he wouldn't drive out their enemies all at once. He's already revealed that he was going to do it gradually in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 22. For the Christian who thinks, once I've become a Christian, all of my problems should go away and all of my dreams should come true. I'm here to tell you that for the Christian, all of your problems don't go away and all of your dreams don't come true. 
But there is one thing that does come true. When the Bible says you pass from death to life, when the Bible says you pass from darkness to light, when the Bible says that you have passed from judgment to mercy, all of that is true. Joshua urges the people to finish the job that Joshua started. Look what it says in verse 15. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from the good land which the Lord your God has given you. Remember? Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings sorrow. And so in verse 16, it says, When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Joshua warned them. It's 1,400, give or take a few years, 40 or 50 BC. Think 1,450 BC. In 800 BC, the Assyrians are going to take the northern kingdoms. In 526 BC, the Babylonians are going to take the southern kingdom. Rebellion, disobedience, idolatry, refusal to obey the Lord is going to result in judgment for them. About 800 years later, the transgression of the covenant, the worship of pagan gods, the wholesale abandonment of the law of Moses is going to reshape them. And they're going to be expelled from the land. The good news, they're going to return to the land. Why? Because God has a plan and a purpose for the Jewish people. They're going to bring forth the Messiah. Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is going to live and Jesus is going to die and Jesus is going to come back to life. And he's going to establish a new covenant. An everlasting covenant that isn't based on keeping the law of Moses, but is going to be based in trust and faith and confidence in Jesus. Joshua charged the people to love the Lord in verse 11. This isn't rocket science. Again, what does it mean to love the Lord? In both chapter 22 to the eastern tribes and later in chapter 24, the western tribes, Joshua's going to spell it out. Loving the Lord means walking in his ways. Loving the Lord means obeying his commandments. Loving the Lord means shunning, avoiding, walking away, separating yourself from evil. Loving the Lord means embrace what is good. We abandon sin. 
we embrace and we hold fast to Jesus. We serve him with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And we keep ourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Just what it says in Jude 21. It's interesting that in Jude 21, Jude admonishes them and he says, keep yourself in the love of God. Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, what can separate you from the love of God? How do you explain that? We keep ourselves in the love of God. He keeps us in his love. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, quote, Love to God is armor of proof against error. The Puritan wrote, For want of hearts full of love, men have heads full of error. Unholy opinions are for want of holy affections, unquote. If I were to change that into the modern vernacular, we might say, our love of God provides body armor against error. And a heart full of love of God will guard against a head full of wrong thinking, which usually comes from listening to the unrighteous or the unholy. This is the business of the Christian. It's to love and delight himself or herself in the Lord. Josh was going to give the instructions to the people of Israel. He's going to continue these instructions in chapter 24. The generation is going to live out their lives in submission and obedience and victory. And once you get past chapter 24 to the book of Judges in the opening verse, it says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? In the book of Judges... It's going to be a series of defeat and deliverance. And defeat and deliverance. Defeat and deliverance. As a generation is raised up who decides instead of obeying God, each and every person is going to do what's right in their own eyes. You will be fine so long as you love the Lord. Abandon sin. Embrace the Lord. But the moment that you let go and you embrace sin, you invite judgment. My advice always, in order to postpone judgment, embrace grace. Say, Lord, Maybe I've lived my life in a way that's dishonoring and displeasing to you. Lord, maybe I've lived in a way that I don't want to live. Lord, I want to let go of the sin. Lord, I, I pray that you would forgive me. That, Lord, you would reconcile me to yourself. And then that you would give me the grace and the mercy and the strength, the honesty and the humility to trust you. And to trust your word. If you pray that simple prayer, guess what? God will honor it. None of us 
have to remain estranged. None of us need be strangers to grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we listen to Joshua's words, as he gives a final appeal, that, Lord, we would heed those words. That, Lord, we too would love the Lord. And that, Lord, we would obey you. That we would want to walk away from evil and that we would want to embrace what is good. And that we would keep ourselves in the love of God. And that you would keep us by grace, by mercy, according to the promises that you've given to us. In Jesus' name. And all the saints said, Amen. Let's stand.